The Florida Turnpike runs north to south, and coming from Orlando, it's the quickest road to take in order to reach Vero Beach. It doesn't take you all the way, however, and you have to get off at a major junction in order to get onto Florida 60, which cuts west to east. These two roads intersect at a small town named Yeehaw Junction. You've likely heard that name, it's pretty funny. The junction is mostly a truck stop, a three-road meeting point smack dab in the middle of nowhere, Florida. There's a historic building at the junction called the Desert Inn, which has been several different types of establishments over the years. It was built in 1898 and served as an inn, then a bordello, then a motel, then a restaurant that closed just a few years ago. It was closed when I visited. The building stands tall, though entirely abandoned. It would be ominous if it weren't for the constant activity around it. When I visited last week, dozens of trucks zoomed past as I surveyed the location. Many trucks headed west and likely held boxes and crates filled with Indian River citrus. As I headed east on 60, a billboard that once advertised the junction was in ruins, large wood squares missing, and others with paint worn away, like nature had scrubbed the art clean. The dread of the emptiness of this corner sunk in. I left Yeehaw with anticipation. I was on 60 for just a few minutes when, from nowhere, the familiar low-lying wetlands changed. No longer were there small shrubs and watery plains on either side of my car. They had been replaced. As far as the eye could see, in either direction, there they were. Oranges. Miles and miles of squat trees sprouting in neat columns and rows. And it kept going as I continued to drive east. Until I reached Vero city limits, the citrus went on and on, and I realized I'd found what I was looking for. Within a few hours, however, I saw the folly in my immediate excitement. What seemed certain along State Road 60 was a microcosm. The Florida citrus industry had been the lifeblood of our state off and on for almost 200 years, but with all that industry, it swept through the state without thought, and the ruins speckled across Florida are hiding in plain sight. And what's worse, is the potential ruins yet to come. Welcome to Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian Podcast. I'm Nick D'Alessandro. This week, the next chapter of our exploration into the Indian River Fruit Company. Part 2. Ruins. Vero Beach is situated on the east coast of the state. The area where it is situated came to be when Henry Flagler's railroad ran south in 1893, a mere year before the first freeze came that wiped out almost all of citrus in the state. Naturally, the area around Vero prospered thanks to the Indian River Citrus League, and the city of Vero started growing in the 1910s. Today, it is a small town with a railroad that cuts right through its historic downtown. Though not as quaint as, say, downtown Mount Dora, or as glamorous as Winter Park's Park Avenue, downtown Vero feels homey, and restaurants, antique stores, and coffee shops pepper its central quarter. In addition, the main office for Treasure Coast Palm, one of my favorite Florida newspapers, was right across from where I had parked. I was starstruck, having used this paper several times in my research, but I gathered myself and crossed towards my destination, the Vero Beach Heritage Center. Built in 1935, this nationally registered landmark is home to the Heritage Center's main hall, as well as the Indian River Citrus Museum. Oranges peppered the doorway, and a sweet citrus smell sat just on the other side. A small group of women were working at the museum, some employees of the Heritage Center itself, and others volunteering at the main desk. Robin, the center's special events coordinator, swept in, gave me a glass of orange juice, and immediately showed me around the one-room museum. When others came in, Heather, the center's executive director, greeted them, and there we all were, drinking orange juice and chattering about our shared histories. 
One man shared that his grandfather owned groves in Claremont where the Citrus Tower was built in 1956 as a means to look out over the orange groves. The groves around the famous tower are now, of course, mostly gone, though the tower still stands. You can visit there still, though the idea of stopping in gives me kind of a sick feeling. The tower's purpose is moot, meaning it stands less like a monument and more like a gravestone to what once was. The museum, however, was filled with life. Photographs, artifacts, old crates, old tools. The museum tracks the story from Ponce de Leon and his scattered sour seeds in the 16th century up to the Golden Age in the 20th century, then to now. An old 90s video titled Citrus Farming for Kids was playing in the corner, and they were selling books, t-shirts, and postcards. The kind guides of the museum piled on brochures for nearby groves, pointed me towards the research facilities in the area and other historic locations, and insisted that I return when I wasn't writing an episode so I could take in the city more. I promised I would, and I intend to keep that, and not just because the orange juice was delicious. The first location they sent me toward was the Indian River Research and Education Center a few miles away in Fort Pierce. It has been on that site since 1947, when only one scientist was conducting research in one lab. It is part of the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences, which is a massive, quote, federal, state, county partnership dedicated to developing knowledge in agriculture, human, and natural resources, unquote. Their facility in Lake Alfred in Polk County is the largest research center devoted to citrus in the world. This center on the East Coast, however, covers several topics including water filtration, pest management, and other forms of irrigation. If I read all the things that this facility covered, it would take pretty much the rest of the podcast. They are extensive, massive, diverse, and ever-changing. And, as it turns out, not a private facility, as I walked into one of their classroom buildings with no complications. Students and professors bustled by, in and out of classrooms, books in hands, conversation flowing about their respective projects. The property is far back from the main road, behind several farmlands, and has dozens of greenhouses and other tarp-covered research centers surrounding the buildings. Paintings of wetlands and native animals hung from the walls, but a large information board was what really caught my eye. It was detailing a citrus-based disease called greening, and how it is to be treated. I had heard of greening already once today. My friends at the museum had informed me that greening was one of the largest threats to the citrus industry. Greening is exactly what it sounds like. It is a tremendously dangerous citrus disease that causes the fruit to take on a sickening green color and the inside juices to become bitter and inedible. It infects the tree and creates green fruit that are misshapen and taste horrible, making them impossible to sell. The disease itself is no threat to humans or animals, but it infects citrus trees and has no cure and will eventually kill the tree it has infected itself. The U.S. Department of Agriculture calls it, quote, one of the most serious citrus plant diseases in the world, unquote. It spreads via a small insect called the Asian citrus psyllid. They're so insanely small that one struggles to even fathom it. They are four millimeters, which is less than one fifth of an inch. They're crazy, stupid small. Now, these bugs are often quarantined and can be warded off by cleaning and spraying the citrus, but these bugs are sometimes difficult to even detect because they're so small. UF's research, however, is set out to stop this pest. In fact, the U.S. Department of Agriculture just gave them $3.5 million to help them with a grapefruit-based research project. The center is growing these grapefruit trees in special and specific screenhouses in order to prevent silids from getting their infection into the trees. If this works, it could save the citrus industry around the world from this incredibly invasive pest. The bad news for Florida, however, is that this is just one minuscule little bug. 
and it's not the only problem. It's like a torrent from there. Hurricanes, international competition, and commercialism are all knocking at the industry's door, and silids sometimes feel like the smallest of the problems. To counteract the loss of income, some groves have turned towards individual tourism as a means to keep a steady flow into the groves. The brochures that the museum had provided set me off in search of orange juice straight from the source. The Indian River Citrus District is bursting with opportunity, however, and there are groves everywhere. Though not as much as you would think. So, I went to what seemed to be the most popular, first. Al's Family Farm. Al's is just a hop, skip, and a jump from the UF Research Facility, right on the side of the road with a dozen signs informing you that yes, this is Al's. A main building resembling a bright red barn had fruit right out front and huge trucks along the back in which people were piling in crates of fruit in all sorts of variety. That truck surely was soon to cross west through Yeehaw Junction, the gateway to Vero I had encountered this morning. Inside, gifts for tourists sat in boxes, including postcards and t-shirts. A small counter advertised fresh fruit samples, including grapefruit, tangerine, orange navel, and red navel. I had one of everything and was stunned. Maybe I'd convinced myself that Indian River Citrus was going to be the best, but it actually was. This fruit was tart, crisp, beautiful to look at, easy to peel, and refreshing. A section of the store was actually a grocery, selling fruit in huge bins, selling orange juice by the gallon, and selling other orange-adjacent items, like honey with orange, or a hand scrub with orange. An assembly line lay at the back with people packing boxes full of the fruit, sending them off to the waiting trucks. A building across the parking lot was a grill restaurant, selling cheap but tasty food, including orange milkshakes. With tourist locations, one often gets the feeling that it would be insane to leave without making a purchase. They really want you to spend money here. Al's Family Farm does not emanate such an energy. They are certainly glad you visited no matter what, but it does leave a little taste on the tongue of a farm with lots of commercial opportunities. They've got to do what they've got to do to stay afloat. I visited Schacht Groves, S-C-H-A-C-H-T. These groves are more interested in local groceries, and their general store had little to no touristy stuff in it. But it had grocery that was not just of the citrus variety. Meat, cheese, drinks, art, and vegetables sat in boxes all around, all local, and a kind employee of the farm beseeched my dozens of questions. I bought a bottle of fresh, unpasteurized orange juice. Now, I'm not going to exaggerate here. It was probably the greatest thing I have ever tasted. I am wont to exaggerate in my reviews, but Shacked Grove orange juice was sweet, refreshing, flavorful, sour, and gone too soon. It's unpasteurized, as I mentioned, meaning the juice only lasts for about two weeks, but it is fantastically fresh and only three bucks for a fairly large single bottle. But I had been told some bad news back at the museum, and I needed to confirm it at the groves. The museum had told me that the Indian River citrus crop was being considered a boutique crop. This means that it is not the standard option for orange juice, but rather a very special type of crop that can only be purchased from this specific area, and that's what makes it unique. It's not mass-produced or wide-known like Tropicana or Minute Maid, but it's specifically sought after. The woman at Shacked Groves confirms this anxiety amongst growers. And on top of the boutique nature, there's just less farms. August of this year saw a census of citrus growers, and found that there was a net loss of almost 8,000 acres. 25 counties in the state were surveyed on their losses or gains, and 21 of those counties in the state had to decrease in acres. This is part of a trend that has been ongoing for 20 years, where acreage had declined every year since 1998. Greening came about in 2005 and has been adding to the causes since. 
Last year, when Hurricane Irma hit the state, nearly half of the crop being grown when it hit in September was destroyed. Before Irma, reports showed that 2017 was supposed to be the big year for citrus, with the industry finally producing enough to undo the effects of greening, but Irma undid all that progress. Shacked Groves itself was impacted, with early estimates showing about 30% of their crop damaged. The threats come from beyond our borders as well. California also grows citrus, of course, and they have less pests and a less humid climate, leading to an equally prosperous citrus industry. Japan, one of the biggest receivers of grapefruit from Florida, have started growing it themselves, cutting that line between us and them. Citrus is no longer some unique crop as it was a few decades ago, and one need only grab a gallon to get the juice they need from a local store. This special Indian River citrus is becoming marginalized, small, and almost insignificant. The odds are stacked against the industry. It's intimidating even as an outsider to consider how much of an uphill climb these farmers are facing. The work must be terrifying, as it's so delicate, and it must be even more intimidating considering the history you're up against. The citrus industry's history is a grim one, and one could almost ignore how perilous the trade can be. It would be easy to forget if it weren't for all the ruins. The abandoned signs, their paint faded, speckling the roadways. The historic packing houses left to scorch in the Florida sun, empty, their dark wood just sitting there. The citrus tower in Claremont, a gravestone to Central Florida's lost agriculture. And Douglas Dummett, the Indian River's patron saint, cannot even be found. His groves are lost to Merritt Island wilderness, and his old home burned down in 1967. Along the roads, where no one traveled, I sought to see some glimpse of this grove. So I drove back to Merritt Island, passing the landmarks I'd visited in search of the ghost towns last month. Maybe it was because the sun had set, but the inky blackness of the island consumed my little car. There were barely any other cars out there either, and the ones that drove past were likely leaving work from the Kennedy Space Center. I wasn't expecting to see much, ruins at least, but what I found was worse. It was void. It struck me that Shacked Groves, Al's Family Farm, and the rest of the Indian River Fruit Company could end in such a way. Darkness consuming their groves as citrus falls away, and Florida finding that it cannot sustain its own identity. But there's hope. The Pelican Island National Wildlife Refuge. Located along the Indian River Lagoon, a few miles north of Vero Beach, it is over 5,400 acres of protected waters and lands, home to a wide variety of birds, notably the brown pelican, for which this refuge was named. It can be reached by an eight-mile wilderness trail that can be traversed by foot, bike, or car, called the Jungle Trail. The sign for the refuge appeared suddenly on this road next to a small stop along the lagoon. The water indeed was not as cold as you'd expect, considering it was in the 60s on the day I traveled. The refuge itself was quiet with minimal human activity. The animals, however, were everywhere. Birds zoomed overhead, pelicans dove out near their eponymous island, an alligator croaked from the marshes near me, and two river otters zoomed past me along an estuary. This place was idyllic, but more so than I realized. See, this was the first national wildlife refuge. Not in the state, but the country. President Teddy Roosevelt declared it as such in 1903 with the help of conservationist Paul Krogel, who fought to protect this land and the birds in it from being poached for their plumage. Krogel became warden of the refuge and stayed there for 23 years until he retired in 1926. There have been 563 refuges added since then nationwide. One moment out there in the lagoon and you'll see why this place is where it all started. It's perfect. But it wasn't, always. Parts of this area, including an island called Orchid Island, were once part of orange groves, grapefruit groves. 
farms aren't inherently natural, so some restoration was required when this became part of a national wildlife refuge. The citrus trees, along with other invasive plants, had to be destroyed, and the island had its soil refreshed, and they moved in mangroves and hammocks and other natural species to restore this ecosystem to its natural state. The Pelican Island National Wildlife Refuge was scarred by the citrus industry, and the abandoned grove left an island changed. But restoration served it well. It saved it from ruin, saved the whole island. Because that's the good news. In the late 19th and early 20th century, Florida built its identity around the citrus industry. Florida citrus was, quote, good for your health and would always be there. The freeze in the 1890s left people dead in the streets, tycoons broke, cities bankrupt. How do you survive that type of failure? Well, we did, we bounced back, and by the 20s it was the golden age of citrus with groves booming and expanding for decades. Then, when tourism and commercialism started taking over in the 60s, Florida's character changed again. By the late 90s, the citrus industry started dying, fading, and has been ever since, and greening in 2005 has advanced that process. Yes, it's still a billion dollar industry in the state, but things are changing. And they have been. All bad news. Except when you remember that citrus isn't Florida. It never was. It came to the peninsula in the 16th century, approximately 500 years ago. The peninsula itself emerged from the ocean over two and a half million years ago. Citrus is a blip on the radar of this state. So who will we be without citrus? That I don't know. If the industry crashes or shrinks to minuscule, it will certainly be devastating. But we'll be Florida. Besides, it's ended before, and on those ruins, Florida just got better. And if there's ruins again, Florida will just get better again. That's who we are. Thank you for listening to Wait 5 Minutes. I hope you've enjoyed these episodes as I have enjoyed tremendously making them. There will be more adventures to come in the new year, notably in search of Florida's grandmother conservationist Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, the woman herself, and her crusade to protect the Everglades a couple decades ago. There are spectacular things yet to come, and I can't wait to share them with you and with new listeners. If you enjoy these, please leave a review or a rating or subscribe or, and this one's important, share them with a friend. This thing can only grow if we help it grow together. I really, really appreciate it. If you have any questions or a topic to suggest, you can reach me at wait5minutespodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. All the songs in this episode are from Lobo Loco. You can find the titles in the description below. All the sources and research are in the description as well. I'll see you in two weeks with our special year in review episode discussing the highs and lows of 2018 and the exciting opportunities in 2019. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourselves, be good to each other, and drink more water. Happy holidays, folks. Thank you.